This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A disease that could ruin a woman, Vaughn, for domestic bliss. Tango fever. The sultry dance had swept the nation and had like the religious screaming fire and brimstone from their pulpits and luring women of all ages from their happy homes. Hi, I'm Vanya. I'm the rom. And I'm Avrin, and I'm the crime. And we take a <laughs> rom-com, and we take a true crime, and we pair it like a what, Avrin? A fine, fine wine. I mean, you know, like wine and cheese, I guess, or wine and food, or... We pair it like a, a really nice glass of wine with like a charcuterie board. There you go. Char- charcuterie. Little charcuterie board, which is just Ooh, one of my favorite things. <laughs> that makes me think we're still in the month of Thanksgiving. What are we doing? We're eating all month mm. long. I'm putting my eating dress on. <laughs> Actually, I, it's really hard because with the candy, mm-hmm. the kid, my kids got, I think a lot of you guys know, I have two little children. One's an eight-year-old, one's a four. And a, they got so much candy that it, I don't want them to hear this right now because they're just outside, but... I had to throw away a bunch of it. Yeah. Because I was eating it. Avrin, it's embarrassing. <laughs> and it's also like it gets me on a wrong path, like where I just, right. you start you to get like. in the habit of like, I can have candy for breakfast. Exactly. And for, lunch and for dinner. Exactly. And oh my God, you're going to think I'm such an old lady, but I don't know. Okay. What? Okay. I'm just, let me just, when I get stressed out, oftentimes it's my neck. That's where you feel it. I can't move it or whatever. Like it's like, probably I've just been like, clenching clenching my shoulders up and not noticing and that probably causes something (laughs) so it's been a little stressful I've been working a lot and just like all sorts of things happening in life Mm -hmm. long story short I'm not gonna bore you guys with this but I don't know if anybody else has had this happen but or maybe I'm the only one and I should probably see a doctor but I was chewing on I took (laughs) so weird I took one of those really fat tootsie roll pieces or mm-hmm. whatever from my kids candy because i like them i like tootsie rolls whatever and i love a tootsie a, roll that one you know yeah and i went to chew on it and it was a little bit harder than i expected and it like my neck went out oh <gasps> like you seized your neck up from trying to bite down on a stale tootsie roll yeah <laughs> yeah i feel like i've had that experience for some reason it's very embarrassing but it is what happens when you you don't expect it it's just supposed to give I know, know, I know. And then I was like, what? 
the hell just happened? Yeah. So there's <laughs> that. So guys, watch out for hard candies and you chewing on them. It could could make your neck go out. <laughs> you could be out of commission. Yeah. Warning. All for a Tootsie Roll. Oh, God. So stupid. I love a Tootsie Roll, though. I, I always liked Dots for Halloween, like Dots. Oh, yeah. Those, shoot, we I got love a couple dots. of those, and I definitely ate those. I like anything mm-hmm. kind of chewy. I don't know. Kinda yeah, so do I. Juji fruits. <laughs> mm. And our kids, my kids both are just chocolate people, which is so weird to me. Because I'm, always, I like chocolate fine, but. Oh, yeah. I, I love chocolate, but I would take a gummy bear over chocolate any day. Same. They don't even fuck with Skittles, which I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Who are you? Are you my child? The only reason I know you're my child is because <laughs> both of you came out of my vagina. You know what I mean? So, anywho, <laughs> it's the month of thanks and giving things now. It is not Halloween anymore, although it was a good month. I really do enjoy yeah. that. I love Halloween. I even watched a couple horror movies not really they were kid horror movies. I'm not even gonna I'm not gonna lie they were real no but we are in the month of Thanksgiving as you guys know we're kind of trying to find like Thanksgiving e rom-coms to cover um last mm-hmm. week we did uh son-in-law which is a very Thanksgiving rom-com for sure actually yeah this week I am I'm reaching a little okay I'm just reaching just a teensy tiny bit I'm calling this one a bro rom com drum. Oh, a bro rom com drum. I love that. It's right. That's exactly right. Because it is not so much uh, romantic love, although there is lots of innuendo and mm-hmm, talk mm-hmm. of romance. Starting with the title of the film. <laughs> Are you guys ready for this? It is <laughs> The Scent of a Woman. Scent of a Woman. That was, uh, came out in 1992. Mm-hmm. And it stars Al Pacino as, you know, Frank, a blind man, a old, like a retired lieutenant colonel, which what right, is he's that? blind. Yeah, he's blind. He's like quite decorated, right? I think so. I think maybe the more he's got lots like of stuff. titles you have in front of your name, like the higher ranking you are. But don't don't hold me to that. Being yeah, accurate we should in any way, shape or form. We should really do research. We need to have somebody. We I can mean, call in. I've. I feel like I, when I was looking for crimes, I specifically at one point went down the avenue where I was like, a lieutenant colonel crime, murder, you know, something. <laughs> I'm sure there's some that exist. There was like, some of them were like private, this person, yeah. or just colonel, or just lieutenant, but I didn't find one that was like lieutenant a lieutenant colonel. colonel. Yeah, because this is a, he plays, so Al Pacino plays a lieutenant colonel, and also we have Chris O'Donnell, who was like a big uh, hotshot back in the 90s. I guess, yes, you know, Robin, he was he was Robin to everyone's Batman. That's right. That might have been right. the end, actually, for him. It's true. <laughs> he he jumped the shark there. He lots of people made fun of him after that. But I think he's like a fine actor. He just has this sense of like naive and innocent. Like wide eyed. Yeah. Wide eyed, blue, white, blue eyed, white man. Uh, <laughs> he's he's a young kid in this. He's playing a high school student. And uh, let's see, it has an 89% Rotten Tomatoes from the critics, so that's pretty damn good, and an uh, 92% yeah. audience uh, rating, which is... I can say that this was my mom in 1992. This was my mom's favorite movie of the year, because I never saw it when it came out. Obviously, I was 10. Yeah. But I remember my mom talking about this movie all the time. Well, it, so. won, it won Best Picture. It got great, you know, Best Sound Design. It won a bunch of awards. So she's right there with, the, with all of the um, With all the other 92% mm-hmm. people, yeah. 
let's see you if anybody at home wants to watch it you can stream it on peacock 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 with a subscription peacock 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 um and you can also rent it on prime or wherever you rent your pictures you're moving pictures at so yeah i'm just gonna i'm gonna take you through this 1992 bro bro rom-com drum take me through it vaughn okay we open on this all boys elite prep school which is called Baird and it's probably I'm sure it's a real thing but it's like where all these the leaders of America go like you know it would have been like a future president and all where like Robert Durst probably went to high school I see how many times I can just throw him into episodes <laughs> I know Adam and I were watching and he was like this reminds me of Dead Poet Society it has that same feel everybody's in yes, like a tweed yeah, jacket definitely. you know um, and then, so Chris O'Donnell plays uh, Charlie, who is a, he is not a rich boy. All of the other students are super rich. And he's like just a poor boy from Gresham, Oregon, who got some student aid and he's on scholarship because they do that. They like let a few people in every year, which I think mm-hmm. is probably accurate for real society, <laughs> real prep schools. Um, and he's with a uh, he's we see these other rich kids and they're kind of assholes and guess who's in this also young philip seymour hoffman oh my gosh that's so i don't remember that because it's been a long time um that's so cool i love him who does he play so he plays one of the friends george the rich kids kind of are mean to him but i would say george they all kind of like make fun of him but george is nicer to him still teases him about being poor but like is you know, nicer. The least assholic. <laughs> and these rich kids are all talking about, they're all planning on going to Vermont for Thanksgiving and Switzerland for Christmas. It's what we do. And they make fun of Charlie asking him to go, but obviously he's not going. But he's he can't go home for Thanksgiving either because he doesn't have the money to get home. So Wants to go home for Christmas. <laughs> so what he decides to do is... There was a little sign-up sheet with ki- with like jobs, weekend jobs, things he can make some money. So he's like, well, if I'm going to stay here for Thanksgiving, I'm going to make some money. So he answers one of the ads, and he's biking out to his job. And this woman, she plays uh, Al Pacino's niece, slash, let's call him, his name's Frank. Frank, the colonel. Frank's niece. <laughs> and she she's kind of like prepping uh, Charlie, saying, you know, he's, fine he's nice just got don't let him drink too much just deep down he's a big lump of sugar and charlie walks (laughs) in and learns that he's he ain't dealing with no dummy and the this is i mean al pacino his voice the way he like delivers as i think Mm -hmm. if you're if you're younger you may not remember or maybe you've seen some things that he was in but He's got this, he's always like, yeah, ooh, hey, hey, yeah. Mm. And kind of a fast talker. Yeah, exactly. He's got this thi- this way about him, exactly. And he, he's like, you got me all misty-eyed. He yells at him like a lieutenant. And he's like, do you want the job? What do you want? And he's and Charlie's like, I want the job. Charlie's like, uh. So he can fly, so I can go forward to go to Christmas, blah, 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 blah. The niece promises it's the most easy 300 bucks you're going to ever make. He sleeps a lot. And she's like, you know, he he was a hero. He was like, he's like a decorated soldier. Then that night at Charlie's other job at the library. So we're back at, so so he's accepted the job. He's going to do it. He's the easiest 300 mm-hmm. bucks he can make. And, you know, he Even though he was like kind of a terrifying 
loud talking, yelling, screaming man. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I often think of some of the jobs that I did when I was younger, just being like terrified. Maybe I never did. I did. I once worked with like a chef where I was supposed to be the bartender and they put me on as sous chef. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. But it was like this small, really mm-hmm. cool restaurant. But I got like eaten alive. It scared the shit yeah. out of me. Chefs are some of the scariest people alive. I Dude, think, she in was my experience in restaurants. Yeah. Like, you're just like, why, why do I, I fear for my life every time I walk in the kitchen? Yeah. I'm like, put the Coke down, Sonia. I'm kidding. I don't know if she was doing <laughs> Coke and I don't even remember her name, but that sounded right. Felt right. Um, let's see. Where are we? So he, he's finishing up his job at the library and George convinces him to l- let him check out this book, which it's supposed to only stay in the library, but he's like, fine, fine. So George helps him close up. And as they're leaving, they see these three other dudes that who they were hanging out with earlier in the day doing something to the light pole where right above where their headmaster parks. And it's been known that the headmaster got a Jaguar Jaguar a Jaguar. He got a Jaguar, a luxury car from the, um, the committee or whatever. And these three punks are like, you know, you don't deserve that. They're just being dickheads. So they put something up there to mess with him. The next morning, the what happens is it's a big balloon that like uh, swells up and it's a picture of the headmaster kissing the people of the board's ass. And the headmaster's <laughs> like, I'm going to pop this balloon. And he pops it and a bunch of white paint goes everywhere. And people are oh, like, oh, no. Oh, yes. Busted. I know. That's, that's I was thinking like a mean balloon. Is that going to be like the a major conflict, but the white paint on the new car, I guess. Is yeah. And this headmaster awful. is like Mr. Task or headmaster task is like so mad. He's just very pissed off. And he asks, uh, Charlie and George is like, who's, who did this? You tell me who the hell did this. And they both kind of act dumb. Like they didn't see anything. And, uh, the headmaster threatens, Oh, threatens slash promises to get him out of Harvard. If he tells, or sorry, the, oh, so, so the he head- basically says, if you tell me who did the prank, I'll make sure you get into Harvard. Exactly. And he's like, I get to rec- recommend one person and I'll do that for you if you tell me. Because he just wants to nail these rich punks. To right. The- uh, he doesn't say anything, but he goes to, goes to his job and. Wait he- a minute. He does. So he refuses to rat on the jerks that are mean to him with a with a promise of going to. I'm curious as to. I agree. This is a weird whole. Is it just about. Maybe it's an early 90s thing where, like, not ratting on people is, like, the ultimate in being a good guy. I guess so, because that is really, that comes back around at the end about not ratting. Okay. I ain't no stit, snitch. I ain't no snitch. <laughs> uh, sometimes you got to just tell the truth. It's not being a snitch, but so we'll get to that. So he goes okay. to the house where he's taking care of char- of uh, Frank and the niece is like, bye, good luck, Charlie. Don't let him drink too much. And no 900 numbers. He loves to talk dirty. And so <laughs> as soon as they leave, the family that usually takes care of Frank, Frank's like got a taxi arrive. He's got his pack. His bags are packed. He's like, we're leaving. Come on, let's go. Charlie's like, where are we going? And he's like, freak show city, New York City. Freak show city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're on a plane. They're sitting in first class. And Charlie asks, why are we going to New York? That's on a need to know basis. And he's like, hoo He always says that. Hoo-ah. hoo hoo So then they arrive in New York City. And they're at the Waldorf Astoria. He's got a suite. It's really nice. And guess what? The last time I was at the Waldorf, I went on my honeymoon there. Oh, cool. Yeah, I went to New York City for my uh, honeymoon. 
and we stayed at the Waldorf, courtesy of, I think my in-laws bought us that, got us that trip, which was so sweet. And I was there during the blackout, so we ended up having to walk Ooh. like 30 flights to get to our room. Oh, no. Well, you hate elevators anyway. It's true. Well, back then I didn't. I didn't hate him. I, I was like, but yes, I it was it was the wildest time to be in New York City when there was no power and no Yeah, that is wild. Lights. It was really cool. I don't actually. think I ever stayed at the Waldorf, but I definitely have been there several times. Yeah, you can you can just see the um the lobby, right? It's like that red Yeah. Yeah, so they're they're in this like special place and and right away Colonel Frank makes reservations at the Oak Room and he orders a limo and Charlie tries to leave. But Frank says, you can't go without eating. So let me at least feed you, you know. They get to the Oak Room and, of course, Charlie's offered a jacket, which is always like an uncomfortable <laughs> thing for men, I'm sure. They're like, I'm sorry, you're inappropriately. You look inappropriate. You're not dressed fancily enough to come into the Oak Room. Yeah. And he's like, sorry, Charlie, you missed your flight. The truth is I need a guide. I need somebody and he's like, I want to lie down on my big, beautiful bed at the Waldorf and blow my brains out. And she, he's kind of like, what? And at, at this point, is like, wait, are you serious? You want to blow your brains out? Well, in the end, Charlie decides to stick around. And it's at the morning. <laughs> to maybe stop that from happening. Yeah. And, he, and all of a sudden, he wakes up and Charlie's sleeping on the couch. And um, Frank is being uh, fitted for a suit. He also got Charlie a suit. So they look real cute. They talk a little bit about that prank situation that Charlie's in, which is, you know, not great for him. He's Frank's learning a little more about Charlie. You know, he's he's poor. He doesn't have a lot of a lot of um, support from his own family. And the reason they got these suits on is because Frank is going to go surprise his brother in White Plains for Thanksgiving. So it's Thanksgiving Day. And this is like ah. hilarious. The person who answers the door is the actor. Well, he's playing uh frank's nephew bradley whitford and oh he hates frank so they they uh, one thing leads to another you know the whole family's uncomfortable they're like set another pl two places they all get in a fight and frank ends up leaving but it's kind of you can tell and you can sense that this is like a last hurrah trip this is he's trying to say goodbye right. to his brother even though he's done bad things apparently to the family and and we also learn from Bradley Whitford's character that the reason he is blind is because he got drunk he got passed up for some promotion got drunk and started juggling grenades and one went off right so he basically caused his own blindness yeah and he is kind of a cantankerous type soul and who knows maybe an alcohol like it sounds like he's an alcoholic but maybe that they don't make that the main thing but could be. Could be why he burned so many bridges. Charlie's like, I gotta go. And Charlie, he's like, Charlie, all I want from you is just one more day. One last battlefield. And Charlie's like, this is awkward for me. <laughs> I'm like, I think I need more than $300. And he's like, what do you care if I blow my brains out or not? Do we tell? Do we not tell? And he's referring to the prank, all that. And Charlie divulges he was offered a bribe about the Harvard thing. Mm -hmm. And then he orders a beer. He's like, I'll have a beer. Uh, he, they're at like a fancy dinner. And there's a woman sitting there. This is like one of those famous scenes that I vaguely remember when I was a kid. And Frank can smell a woman. And he goes up to her and is like, you're wearing this from this. This is the soap. He knew the bar of soap she was wearing, which I've heard, you know, People who lose one sense, their other senses are heightened. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And one thing leads to another and they do a tango and it's pretty 
good. I mean, tango is hard when you can see. I remember this scene so vividly because the actress, um, Gabrielle Anwar, I think is her name. But me and my sisters were obsessed with her because she... Um, was in that movie Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken I love as that Sonora, movie. who was like the horse jumper who runs yep. away with the carnival. And that was like my favorite movie as a kid. Yeah. And I watched it over and over again. And I just loved her. My sister did too. That so I so remember good. this movie almost just because I knew who that actress was when I was She's that young. so pretty. Yeah. And he asked, do you tango? She said, I wanted to learn once, but Michael didn't want to. Michael thinks it's hysterical. And she's talking about her boyfriend. Would you like to tango now? I'm offering you my service free of charge. I think I'd be a little afraid of making a mistake. And he says, that's the great thing about tango. You make a mistake and you just tango on, which is so (laughs) cute. And they dance and it's a beautiful scene. And you watch Charlie watch him in awe and mystery. You know, it's this guy is what is he doing? Right, like, who is this guy? And yeah. as they get back into the cab, or the, sorry, they have a limo, the, he asks his driver, he's like, uh, yeah, I need an escort now. Yep. So they get an escort, <laughs> and he's like, how's my hair? And while Frank's bonking, boinking Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> nope. He's boinking Charlie. No, boinking the escort. Yeah, while Frank's boinking the escort, Charlie calls George, and George is about to tell his dad because he was first he was like I'm not going to say anything but he's he's you can sense he's about to tell his dad and then Frank gets back in the car and he's like what a beautiful woman and the next morning Frank has slept all morning and it's weird because before you know as a military person he wakes up early and he's got shit to do but you can tell he's getting ready he's depressed he's ready to die uh Charlie tries to get him out of bed and he's like, let's go out. He's like trying to do anything to get him out. Let's go for a ride and piques his interest. Frank's like, oh, yeah. They take him to a Ferrari dealership and mm-hmm. somehow he convinces him to let Charlie take this car out. And they're driving and they're down in Dem- Dumbo, which back in the 90s apparently was a complete ghost town because nobody was down there. They were just like right. going crazy and he let he lets blind Frank drive and he goes too fast and he tells tells Charlie to tell him when to turn. It's crazy. It's freaking insane. And then just when you think it's like, oh, he had this beautiful moment. Then he gets pulled over by a police officer. And, and mm-hmm. as he gets pulled over, he's For like driving I, blind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, you know, blind driving. Are you kidding me? I'd be freaking the hell out. And oh, my God. I'd be freaking out. He's like, I haven't had a ticket in years. And Frank talks his way out of the ticket and the officer never, no, never even knows he's blind. And once Frank wow. tries to kill himself by... So after that, Frank tries to just like kill himself by crossing in traffic. Then he tried to go pee on the street. Like he's shit's getting out of hand. He's He says to Charlie, I'm tired. I'm tired. And he just wants to end his life. Then Frank asks Charlie to get some aspirin and a fancy cigar. Charlie goes out to the Waldorf lobby thinking, okay, yeah, I'll go get these things. But thinks better of it because he has a bad feeling. And he turns around. He goes back up into the hotel room. And Frank is in full military garb with his gun, which, by the way, he had taken from him earlier. Charlie had taken from him. Right. He thought he had all the bullets, but he didn't. He didn't take the gun because you don't take a gun from a military person. They never give their weapon up. But he gave him the, the bullets. bullets and he thought that that was enough. But he had saved bullets and lied to him. And he points the gun at Charlie and says he's going to shoot him, too. Charlie pleads with him just to put down the gun. And this is a, just a crazy scene. It's this is I understand why there was awards because the acting is 
pretty phenomenal and it's pretty intense. And so <laughs> Charlie's like, you're just in a slump right now. Frank's like, slump? No, slump, Charlie. I'm bad. I'm, I'm not bad. No, I'm rotten. And he's like, you're not bad. You're, you're just in pain. Right. Frank's like, what do you know about pain? You little snail darter <laughs> from the Pacific Northwest. He's just like, let, let me have your gun, Colonel. No time to grow a dick, son. I don't know why I want that to be like, like <laughs> no time to grow a dick, son. Just give it to me. And one thing leads to another. And they like, he goes to kill himself. Charlie jumps on him and they have a serious brawl. And he, he saves his life, but he's ready to kill him now. Right. Do it. I don't care. And eventually he calms down and through tears and pleading, gets him to put down the gun. And Frank says, you know what keeps me going all these years? One day I could have a woman, arms wrapped around me and legs wrapped around me. And I could wake up the next morning and she could still be there. But I finally gave up on it. And Charlie's like, I don't know why you can't have that. Like, you're a good looking guy, you know? And he's obviously right? just like... Just be nicer. Just be a little bit nicer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so like, they, don't be an asshole to everyone you meet. And then maybe she won't get up and leave. Or maybe you won't have to hire a woman. Exactly. Because you could be nice to someone and maybe they would voluntarily, for free, come home with you. And it could maybe have something to do with alcohol consumption. That could be. There's sure. A, that, that, sure. That uh, genre of, or not genre, that age group who were, you know, served and also became out, mm -hmm. came home with post Partum, not postpartum, yeah. but like mental issues. Post-traumatic, PTSD, yeah. Yeah, they used alcohol, a lot of them. Even my grandpa was one of those people. So anyways, they end up taking the limo back to New England because he only bought a one-way ticket, one-way flight ticket because he was planning to kill himself and Charlie missed his flight. So then Charlie jumps into this school hearing that where the headmaster is basically trying them. They've got Charlie on one side, they've got George on another side, and... Wait, so sorry. I just want to yeah. make sure I'm tracking. Okay, so we've saved the life of Frank. Yes. Told him he's a good-looking feller. And then what, they just cut to the whole weekend is over and he's back at school? Yeah. Well, so they drive back. Yeah, yeah. He, they oh, cut Frank to, drives him. Frank Frank drives him in the in the limo. They've got like the limo guy, drops him off. Okay. Charlie is facing the music by himself. He's at a table by himself. You know, his parents couldn't come because they're poor and they don't have money to fly, fly and help be there with him. And... Then we've got George with his rich dad on the other side and the headmaster is putting them on the spot and basically saying, we will find out these two men witnessed who did this prank. I will find out who it is. George, who is Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's like, I couldn't really see. I couldn't really. But in the end, he's like, it could have been these three guys. And the guys are like, God damn it. And then it gets to Charlie and Charlie's like, I'm not going to say. I'm just not going to say. So he's like, I'm not snitch snitching on this. I'm not doing it. So Trask is the headmaster. He's like, I'm going to recommend to the disciplinary committee that you be expelled, Mr. Sims. You are a cover-up artist and you are a liar. And Frank walks in. And he mm -hmm. sits down and he says, well, gentlemen, when the shit hits the fan, some guys run and some guys stay. Here's Charlie facing the fire and there's George hiding in Big Daddy's pocket. And what are you doing? You're going to reward George and destroy Charlie? And Mr. Charles, are you finished, Mr. Slade? No, I'm just getting warmed up. I don't know who went to this place. William Howard Taft, blah, blah, boo, whoever. Their <laughs> spirit is dead. If they ever had one, it's gone. You're building a rat ship here, a vessel for seagoing snitches. And if you think you're preparing these minnows for manhood, you better think again. Because I say you're killing the very spirit this institution proclaims it instills. What a sham. What kind of show are you? 
you guys putting on here today? And I'm here to tell you this boy's soul is intact. It's non-negotiable. You know how I know someone here, and I'm not going to say who, offered to buy it, only Charlie wasn't selling. Oh, shit. Shit. And then the headmaster, the headmaster this is like one of the famous lines, the headmaster is like, sir, you are out of order. And... He's, and Frank's like, out of order? I'll show you out of order. You don't know what out of order is, Mr. Trask. I'd show you, but I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too fucking blind. If I were the man I was five years ago, I'd take a flamethrower to this place. Out of order? Who the hell you think you talking to? I've been around, you know. There was a time I could see, and I could have seen boys like these younger than these. Their arms torn out, their legs ripped off, but there isn't nothing like the sight of an amputated spirit. There's no prosthetic for that, you think you merely send in this splendid foot soldier back home to Oregon with his tail, he said Oregon, <laughs> with his tail between his mm-hmm. legs, but I say you're executing his soul. And why? Because he's not a bared, barred, bared man. Bared man, you hurt this boy. You're going to be bared bums, the lot of you. And Harry, Jimmy, Trent, wherever you are, fuck you too. <laughs> Anyways, he goes on and on and on. But like, it's it's a fun speech to watch Al Pacino execute it's great and he's he ends with you you're holding this boy's future in your hands committee it's a valuable future believe me don't destroy it protect it embrace it it's gonna make you proud one day i promise you it ends and the the disciplinary committee all stand up and they're like hubbub 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 watermelon watermelon (laughs) peas and carrots peas and carrots and they say okay we don't need to like take this behind closed doors we can already we give you a verdict right away. And then the, the old secretary comes up and she's like, Mr. Charles Sims is excused from any further response of this innocent. Yay. Everybody's excited. <laughs> and the boys get like probation, the ones that were called out. And the Philip Seymour Hoffman character was neither granted anything good or anything bad. In the eyes of these people, he's just a shitty person just because he snit. snitched on his friends. <laughs> and on the way out of the building, Frank smells the one woman in the entire crowd who was also on the disciplinary committee and she's actually beautiful this is a s- incredibly cute meet cute moment where he smells her mm-hmm. he knows exactly what scent she's wearing and uh you know he's like i know where to find you so oh, potential so potential romance and this movie ends with frank going back to his niece's house and he hugs the little kids and uh yeah he tells his the youngest one, he's like, your Uncle Frank had a really hard Thanksgiving, honey. Let's go make some marshmallows or something like that. And that's it. <laughs> that's the movie. Wow. So, so it's not so rom-commy, but it's like, it's like, it's definitely a Thanksgiving movie. Yep. And it's got a bromance. Mm-hmm. And then also it, it ends with a little bit of like the possibility that Frank is going to get the only thing that had been the idea of that, of finding a woman that he would wake up in the morning and she'd still be there. Like maybe he's going to get that. So that's romantic. She seemed interesting. So I I like that. And it felt, it did feel romantic. It did. And he's, I mean, the whole time he was, whether it was romance or just, uh, you know, sexual fascination. (laughs) It was a theme throughout the movie too. But yeah, what do you think? Like talking about the snitches get stitches. I just, I would just find that so curious. I guess, I guess it probably all depends on, I mean, again, like what what was considered valuable or important in 1992, which obviously maybe we don't remember that well. But I just find it interesting that like the a, like a one of the most climactic or like one of the most big. Like, wow, Avrin, use your words. One of the biggest <laughs> conflicts in this movie is 
should I tell the headmaster who destroyed his property and in like in exchange guarantee a good future for myself or should I just keep my mouth shut and then maybe have my whole future ruined? <laughs> I guess yeah, part of me is just it's, like, it's weird. I mean, I don't know. I guess it shows integrity to be like, I'm not going to trade my future for somebody else. You know, so I guess in that way I could see it. I think that's what they're going for. It's just to me, it's like an interesting conflict because it feels kind of, I don't know, maybe it, it, it feels either not important enough or like just too inconsequential. Like it's yeah. a prank where no one was hurt or anything. Right. But something, you know, you dump white paint. If somebody dumped white paint on my car, I'd be pissed and I want them to pay for it. I think what it comes down to with the integrity now I remember is that it's the fact that he offered him the Harvard because he knows right. he's poor. So he was right. So and I get that down. where it's like, I'm not willing to trade in the future of these pranksters to like secure my own future. Exactly. So I do get that, but I don't know. Part of me is like, you guys should have come up with something with higher stakes or. I agree. I agree. I don't know. I was like, but again, I've never been like a prep school student no. and I don't know what that pressure is like or that world is like. So Maybe that's yeah. also part of it. But yeah, overall, I it though, like I liked it. I liked the movie. I thought great acting, really sad. I mean, it's somebody who wanted to die by suicide, who wanted to end it. Yeah, all. like being prepared to end your life in a very real way, like a planned out trip. Yeah, it's like, like you'd, he'd thought it through. You the know? man needs, he needs help. He needs like some counseling. Yeah. We don't see that part of the story. I hope that Charlie got... A whole hell of a lot more than $300 yeah. for his weekend work. <laughs> I hope they bought him a plane ticket and then gave him $300. I know. Because that sounds like an awful lot for like a non-professionally trained high school student yeah. to navigate <laughs> successfully preventing this man from offing himself like exactly. over and over again. So Charlie, you do have a bright future. My goodness. That's right. That's right. He's a sweet kid. So, sweet kid. So sweet kid. Little Chris O'Donnell with those baby blues. Um so when I was trying to connect a crime, I went down a few like veins. First, I thought immediately scent of a woman. Okay. Is there ever been like a serial killer that's like obsession was like the way that the, not just necessarily women, but the way that his victims smelled. Okay. I can't, there's no such thing as that apparently in real life. Everything is about that um, book. Then they based that TV show perfume off of. Where it's like about a serial killer in old timey England that has like a perfect nose yeah. and becomes obsessed with bottling like this, the way women smell. Um, but that's not real. So I couldn't do that story. Then I thought, okay, maybe there's been like murders in the Waldorf Astoria. Ooh. There have been three. There have been three murders in the Waldorf Astoria, but none of them were, have been solved as far as I could tell. And there wasn't a whole lot of info there. So I was like, okay, that's not going to work. That I got to be able to flesh it out a little bit. You know, you got to yeah. have something interesting to tell the people. Um, and then what else did I think? Okay, obviously, like just a Thanksgiving day, like family killing because of that climactic scene where they get in the big fight on Thanksgiving. Yeah. And I just was like, the only one I found, I was like, I just, I don't want to tell that one. Yeah even though it would have fit. I think maybe because last week's was just so, so sad. I was like, I, I, I can't do that one. So maybe uh -huh. I'll save that for the other Thanksgiving episode. Yep. Um, but the, the thing that always stuck out to me about this movie 
was that tango scene. Oh, yes. Was the scene where they danced the tango. It's pretty much the only scene from the movie I even remembered when you said you were going to do this. Me too, when I was a kid. Yeah. And so I have found a story, a true crime story, about the death of a tango dancer and instructor from way back in the old timey days. All right, so are you ready for it? And I got um, a lot of this information from an article called The Death of the Tango Queen, written by uh, Mava, or Mara sorry, Bovson. So here we go, Vaughn. Are you ready I'm so ready. I'm excited. He lured her to Wayne, Illinois, with the promise of teaching a tango class he had organized. She met him at the train station, carrying a large satchel that contained a pink dance costume and hundreds of dollars in jewelry. Mm. It was 1912, and a disease was raging across the United States. Uh A disease that could ruin a woman for domestic bliss. I just love all this old-timey speak that I was reading in this article. A disease that could ruin a woman, Vaughn, for domestic bliss. Tango fever. (laughs) The sultry dance had swept the nation and had, like, the religious screaming fire and brimstone from their pulpits and uh, luring women of all ages from their happy homes. At the age of 37, and a mother of three children aged 17, 14, and 5, it would have seemed unlikely that Mildred would succumb to tango fever. But alas, it seemed nobody was immune. She had a passion for dancing. In fact, I believe her love for it amounted to mania, said John Coulain, who was the manager of the San Souci dance studio where Mildred worked as a tango instructor. On two occasions, she collapsed after dancing too much. So the guy who owned the studio she taught at said that her love for the tango amounted to mania and that she actually collapsed on more than one occasion after like working herself up into such a fever pitch doing the tango. Well, you know, Avrin, I have been to, I have some friends back in New York. There's a whole scene. People become obsessed. I believe it. I mean, I mean, it's such a cool dance. I've never. I've tried. It's, it's, uh, I, uh, it was hard. It was hard for me. Yeah. You, you have to really give in so much. Mm-hmm. That is hard for me. Yeah. And I also just feel like I need to, I need to like, I would take a class. Yeah. I don't think I would just show up and be like, let's try to tango. Yeah. Well, and you get really close to people. And I don't know. It's like, I need to know the person before I'm like pressed Absolutely. body to body. Because it it's the dance where like the arm is extended, but like the, the whole body is like yeah. pressed up It is very other, sensual. Like I went to a wedding. That wedding I went to in Virginia they had a she yeah. she's an avid tango dancer they with they had a tango band there it was lovely oh my god that's so cool but it was like you watch these people tango around by you and my my friend mike and i were like yeah we're going to stick this one out we're going to wait for the <laughs> For the booty booty bumping music to come on. Just, yeah. you know. Where, when's the electric slide going to yeah. happen? Oh my God, are you kidding me? I love it. <laughs> Sorry, I, I live for that. No, not at all. Okay, so now we know she's, she's really she's she's mad touched by the tango <laughs> fever. So on September 26 of 1913, Ada Johnston heard the news that a woman had been run over by a train coming from Wayne, Illinois to Chicago. But before the identity of the woman would be made public, Ada already knew she would never see her roommate, Mildred Allison Rexrote, ever again. Because earlier the same morning, as as the train accident, the same morning that the train accident happened, Ada had received a call from a strange man telling her that Mildred was heading off on a wedding trip and that she would not be coming back. I was like, what's... 
okay, she's going to a wedding, but she ain't returning. Like, I don't, maybe a wedding trip meant something different back then. Oh. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so even though the woman was completely unrecognizable, so mangled by the train her body was, it became immediately clear that the manner of death was no accident. There were two bullet holes <gasps> in her head. This woman had been murdered. Identified as Mildred Allison Rex wrote through her gloves and clothing. I love back in the day, they're like, that's definitely her gloves. That's definitely her dress. Right, because nobody it's changed her. their outfits. Nobody had multiple right? outfits. Right, and they don't have, they don't have all of those things that we have now, like DNA or even probably dental records. Right. Who knows if they were doing that yet. Um, so police immediately zeroed in on the two men in her life as the prime, uh, the prime suspects. There was her ex-husband, William Allison, a barber, and her current husband, Everett Rexrote, a farmer. And both men had ample motive as Mildred was driving them mad with her obsession for Django. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, what? <gasps> driving them mad. And then this is a quote from her ex-husband, William. She had become dissatisfied and irritable at home, he told police. The couple fought constantly, and their fighting got even more extreme after she introduced her then-husband, William, to her new dance partner, Everett Rex wrote. And here, <laughs> and here comes my second tie-in, not just the tango scene tie-in, Vaughn, my second tie-in to our movie today. And things came to a head on Thanksgiving. Yay! Of 1912. That's like the most lame tie-in ever. Also, Thanksgiving happened in her life, too. <laughs> um, so, But things in her first marriage came to a head on Thanksgiving of 1912 when Mildred refused to say, stay home and celebrate the holiday with her family because she had a date to dance the tango with her new dance partner slash boyfriend. Uh -oh. And nothing could keep her home. The divorce became final on May 15th of 1913. William got the kids, the house, and everything else. Mildred got the freedom to tango with Everett Rex wrote whenever the hell she wanted. <laughs> All right, so Mildred and Everett Rex wrote married on May 26th of 1913, a mere 11 days after her divorce was final. And as a gift, Everett bought her two big diamond rings. But the honeymoon phase did not last long. Everett worked on his family farm, um, which was out in, like in Macon, Illinois, while Mildred continued to teach tango lessons in Chicago. And only a few months into their marriage, she ran off with a new dance partner, uh -oh. another tango man called Mr. Spencer. Her friends knew nothing about him, not even his first name, but they knew one thing. This Mr. Spencer was not to be trusted. A tango fiend who talks with a drawl, dances with a drag, and looks with a stare. One dance hall regular described Mr. Spencer. Yeah. I liked that. Yeah. I wonder what it means, like, dances with a drag. Well, maybe it's like know. a foot drag. I don't know. It's very, like, right. uh, it, from watching tango, it's very, like, drippy. It's like, bum. Yes. Everybody's, like, you know. Yeah, you're kind of like melting into each other, yeah. into the floor. Exactly. Um, and he looks with a stare, which I thought was such a great description of like somebody doesn't look at anything. He stares at everything. Freaky. Which I was like, yep, that's creepy. Yeah. I'm totally, uh, I'm getting the picture you're, you're painting for me there. <laughs> so um, when alibis for both ex-husband and current husband check out, police turn their um, focus towards this mysterious Mr. Spencer. An anonymous tip led them to a boarding house on the south side of Chicago where a Mr. Edward Spencer was staying. 
This Mr. Spencer was taller than witnesses had described Mildred's Mr. Spencer, and um, police feared this was another false lead until they searched his room and found a suitcase belonging to Mildred stained with blood and a revolver matching the same caliber of bullets retrieved from Mildred's skull. If they were still like, well, we gotta make sure, zero doubt remained after Spencer started talking to police. He freely admitted to killing Mildred, telling police, she thought she was working me, the way she worked the farmer, he said. She thought we were gonna be married. When we got out of the station, it was nearly eight o'clock. We turned around and walked down the track until we got where it was dark. I took her by the right arm, pulled out my gun, and shot her in the head. Then I laid her on the railroad track so she would be tore up. <gasps> what? Sick. Disgusting. So he like fully admits to killing her and says, like, I'll not do it again because she thought she could play me, but I played her. Like, Ew. just real messed up dude. And this is just the beginning, Vanya. Um, Spencer then went on to confess to 25 additional murders. 10 since his release from prison in September of 1912. And he also let police know he had no plans to stop, even telling them that if they hadn't arrested him um, when they did, he was planning to murder his landlady, Mrs. A.J. Schofield, that very night. So he's like, I'm a killer. I'll do it again. In fact, my landlady should send you guys a present because the plan is totally <laughs> to kill her, but you guys oh arrested me. Oh, my God. So shootings, death by hammer, drowning, and lighting fires. Spencer gave police a plethora of methods he used to kill, and his motive was always money. Other than his frequent time spent in jail, uh, Spencer could really tell police nothing of his past. He didn't even know what his real name was. His earliest memory was of breaking out of the home for friendless boys. Hey, tie-in number three. No, I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> not the same as a prep school. Um, well, but how sad is that? A, home, is sad. a home for friendless boys. So his earliest memory was breaking out of that place where his mother had abandoned him. He also told police that of his four marriages, two of them had ended in murder, meaning he had murdered two of his wives. So while this confession was truly insane, as it is, police soon figure out that most of it isn't true. Spencer, who'd been incarcerated for most of his 22 years, <laughs> had uh, been in prison at the time he claimed to commit several of these crimes. So they could immediately say, like, you didn't do that. You huh. were in jail. Um, and within a week, police were positive they were dealing with a kind of insanity known as stir simple, which is a delusional state caused by spending too much time behind bars or locked up in jail that oh. you start, you become stir simple, meaning like you start confessing to crimes you didn't commit? I don't know. I was like, okay. Hmm. Um, it also didn't help that Mr. Spencer was hopelessly addicted to opium. So ah. the drugs might have also played a part in him thinking he'd done all these things he hadn't and done. And that uh, stare, probably, that long stare. And that, st that long stare, yeah. So pissed off that police didn't believe him, Spencer insists on taking them on a tour of his murder spree. And as they drive through the streets of Chicago, Spencer calmly pointed out the locations where he'd whacked an old man with a hammer over there. And I shot a young girl right over there. I ransacked that house. I set fire to an elevator shaft in this building. Oh, and to that theater. And after this, police are like, oh, shit. So maybe he didn't do all of the things that he said, um, but he definitely committed the crimes that he was telling them about in this ride along. He wasn't oh. in jail at the time. They were crimes that had happened. He knew the exact locations. So they, they were like, okay. He didn't do all of the things he said, but he definitely committed uh, several murders and several burglaries and robberies. 
They also learned that his real name was Henry um, Scarupa and that he came from a long line of criminals. So he was like born into a family full of criminals. They obviously abandoned him, but maybe it's genetic. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> um, so his trial for the murder of Mildred Allison Rexroad began on November 11th, 1915. And Henry made zero effort to help himself. He called the judge a bonehead, the prosecutor old baldy, and the jurors a bunch of rummies, which I looked up and the internet says that means he was calling them a bunch of drunks. <laughs> um, so apparently if you were a rummy, that means you're a drunk, which makes sense. I'm going to start saying um, that. Sorry, he also, tr- I know, don't be such a rummy. <laughs> um, he also tried to strangle his own defense attorney in court. What? So not doing anything to help himself <laughs> convince these people that he shouldn't go to jail unless he was going for insanity which maybe he was um but within three days the jury came back with a guilty verdict and the tango slayer was hanged on july 31st and that is the story of the death of the tango queen Ooh. and that was my true crime tie-in listen there's two more tie-ins i think rummy we got a drunk in my in my story oh that's right bunch of rummies and here's maybe a far reach but what if he was really just trying to kill himself by having them hang him yeah by acting Actually, out that's totally possible maybe he was like i'm not i'm going for the death penalty yeah <laughs> like i want this to end you could be onto something mm-hmm. there so that's actually a really legit tie-in if that is the case if he was you know confessing and then doing all those crazy antics in court simply because why to would you be sentenced to death? That would make sense. Interesting. Death or suicide by by cop or by court. Yeah. By corporal punishment. Interesting. By corporal really punishment. good, really good story. That is a great tie-in. You are completely right about the tango scene in the movie that uh scent of a woman. And it is uh, because I know a little bit about tango and the way people mm-hmm. are in love with it, it's love it. fun to hear. I mean, listen, I don't want anyone to be murdered, but it is fun to hear a no. little bit about that as well. Well, and it's interesting, too, because it's I feel like it's not something I've ever really heard talked about. You know, you hear about like the Roaring Twenties and all of, like the Charleston and all that. Yes. But the fact that, in, you know, around 1912, the tango was like the dance du jour, if you will. Um, And that wasn't something that I knew. So that was kind of fun to learn about. And uh, I hope that that her two former husbands went on to hopefully have okay lives. And I mean, we all know life got pretty hard for everybody. Right, the the Great Depression. Shortly after that, because there's a World War II about to start soon. Or World War I, sorry, not two, World War I. It was a tough time in our country, but... um, yeah. And I often think back into our one of our first uh, crimes that we covered when we just used to crime, uh, cover only crimes, and uh, Bonnie and Clyde right. is such a fascinating... Mm-hmm. If you guys are interested in Bonnie and Clyde at all, go back into our, uh, some of our old episodes and listen to that one. Yeah. It was a really good, very sad, but it also like let you know what was going on part of the during that time. It's a bleak, bleak time yeah. in our history the yeah the bleak bleak world everyone was living in and what people had to do to try to get by yeah oh god you guys happy thanksgiving month yeah i love it i love it we're gonna take talk that's right we're gonna take next we're gonna take thanksgiving week off so we will talk to you guys in one after the holiday after the holidays yeah so we'll be back on tuesday um uh the day after the tuesday after thanksgiving 
So thank you yeah. so much for Have listening. Have a wonderful holiday. We love you. We're very thankful for you, Rom Criminals. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are just loving us, please subscribe and also follow us on any of the socials at Rom Crime. Also, if you can't wait for more, you could join our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash romcrime. And the month of December, we will be doing a live show exclusively for our Patreon members. We will see you in two weeks, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving.